Hello, my name is Justin Kluger, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to The Important Cinema Club, and today we're talking about Edmund Greville, and you may be going, who? Well, I'm not going to pronounce his name as well as you did, but yes, that was the first thing that I asked when you raised this filmmaker to me. This is a filmmaker who has worked in a huge number of genres. He's worked in both France and Britain. He also worked in the Netherlands and some other countries as well. And I think it's safe to say that wherever he worked, he worked in the margins of those countries' film industries. I know that a lot of his work is lost or inaccessible, and I know that even his small number of fans consider him to be rather uneven. So I'm curious, what was it about him that inspired your fanatical devotion? Like a lot of the filmmakers that I kind of get obsessed with, usually the first step is, wait, I haven't heard of these people before. (laughs) And I first heard about Edmund Greville, and this is a name we're probably going to say a bunch of times on this podcast, through reading, I think, Bertrand Tavernier's journal. And he mentioned a film, and I'm one of those people that if I read a film in something and I've never heard of it before, I go looking for it. Especially if it's somebody whose opinion I trust, and they say, oh, this is good. Can I interrupt you for a second? We will have listeners who do not know who Bertrand Tavernier is. Can you explain that? Uh, Bertrand Tavernier is a director in France who hasn't really gotten any like big American hits that people talk about he uh sadly passed away only a few weeks ago and he is like france's like biggest cinephile ever while at the same time making film after film after film in france probably his most famous american picture is probably a sunday in the country or round midnight from 1986 which was a film about jazz uh, that starred Dexter Gordon and Martin Scorsese. He's a filmmaker we don't really talk about that much, but I've become obsessed with Bertrand Tavernier and by consequence, Edmund Greville, because Tavernier seemingly was the only fan of the man. <laughs> well, he wrote a long article about Greville that was translated in film comment a couple years ago. And I know that Tavernier is as you said, a huge cinephile. He knew more about movies than just about anyone. And he was really fascinated, too, with like the margins of cinema. I mean, Tavernier is one of the guys, uh, the first people to interview Edgar G. Elmer, him and Luc Moulet. And from this article, it's safe to say that Greville has a kind of Edgar G. Ulmer-ish appeal for Tavernier. Like, he's somebody who was working in the margins, he was working oftentimes in disreputable genres, and a lot of what Greville was able to bring to his work was this strong sense of mise-en-scene and great film sense. I'm just going to read a very quick passage from the Tavernier article. Tavernier writes of the sheer pleasure in filming that can be found in just about all of Greville's works touched me at the time and still moves me today. Fleeting present in commissions and sustained throughout his best, this joy in filming bears no relationship to the visual brio of Duvivier, the dazzling rigor of Jean Grémillon, or a Max Ophuls. It privileges surprise, a pileup of ideas, a flow of images that recalls wordplay, without ever being in danger of excess or ridicule. When I first watched a couple of Greville films, what grabbed me instantly was how dynamic his filmmaking was, how fresh it was for the periods that he was working in, the 30s and the 40s, the camera moving all over the place, the uh, almost Edgar Wright-ish like cutting and whip pans. It just grabbed you by the lapels and shook you as you were watching it. So, you 
immediately I became interested in that. And then I became befuddled by the fact that no one talks about him. You can find almost no information about his work, but he directed a lot of stuff, including a lot of stuff in English. So it's not like there's a language barrier there that like you can't see any of his films unless you speak French. So having researched him, I mean, when I look at his filmography, I don't see like the one movie. He doesn't have like his detour. Is there a movie that like all that the fans hang their hats on and say this is Graville? Probably his best is Pour une nuit d'amour, uh, for a night of love uh, that came out in 1947. Does not have a DVD release and it doesn't have any version available with English subtitles. So I watched it because I speak French, but it's a little bit tough for other people too. And I think that Remou, the first film um, that me and you watched from 1935, is the other one that gets held up as like this is one of the great uh, Graville movies. So that movie, the English title is Whirlpool, and it is a tragic film about everyone's favorite topic, male impotence. So I think that like right here, you realize, oh, why don't people talk about Greville versus someone like Edgar G. Ulmer or Joe H. Lewis? And I think that even though he's as dynamic and I've watched a lot of his films and that thematically he is an auteur because he keeps going back to the same themes over and over and over again. I'll get into that a little bit later. But he never did any genre movies except late in his career. And they're not good. So, like, he doesn't have a black cat, or he doesn't have a detour, he doesn't have a gun crazy to his name, and so you don't have that launching spot to go explore films that you would consider more of his minor work. Yeah, I mean, Whirlpool seems like more of a prestige production. The story briefly involves a newlywed couple. They seem so happy. They seem so in love. But unfortunately, on their honeymoon, they suffer an auto accident. The auto accident gives the husband a horrific spinal injury that he is able to mostly recover from except for one crucial thing. It leaves him impotent and no hope whatsoever forever of ever getting an erection again. Now, you and I might hear that and think, well, you know, he could go down on her. But no, he he doesn't do that. He's resigned to a sexless life, uh, just as she is. Gavin is trying to do this in a more kind of broad sense, that there's like a loss of... Uh, what, you know, the main character believes defines him as a man. And he's also weak. Like, he has to walk with crutches. From there, he finds his wife, who they have a loving marriage at a certain point, but she starts to fall away from him because he can't provide or be there in the way that, you know, she needs him to be. And that's not to paint his wife, who starts an adulterous affair, as the villain of the piece, because she's not. And I think that's what's interesting about a film like Whirlpool, is that it is fairly complex tackling this kind of subject matter. Yeah, it's emotionally complex, because as you say, you don't necessarily get the sense that it's the impotence or only the impotence that ends up unraveling the relationship. He loses some primal confidence in himself. He loses the belief that he can function as a man and as a partner. And, you know, I feel like people listening to this are like oh man a movie about impotence but this film is like visually dazzling camera work up the wazoo every cut every like the camera's moving in ways that you're like oh cameras could move like this in 1935 yeah many uh, spectacular tracking shots and just a lot of pictorial beauty like when they go to the dam or the final scene which i think is also framed against the dam or framed against like you know vast horizons oftentimes very visually poetic and dynamic as well i've read some reviewers say that they don't like that about greville is that he is a very heavy-handed filmmaker that that poeticness is often 
right in your face. Can I just say that I maybe have two minds about this a little bit. I like his visual style. I like how he's always doing something kooky and inventive with the camera. I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves, but a movie like Noose from 1948, which is one of his better regarded movies, it's uh, a film noir, a, a British equivalent of a film noir, kind of a Jack the Ripper type story. There's so much going on that it almost becomes distracting. Like there's an early scene in that movie where the main character is a feisty lady reporter who's on the trail of this Jack the Ripper-like killer. And she's at her editor's office and she tears up a newspaper. And then the next shot, it's a reverse shot of her editor framed through the torn up newspaper. That's the, you know, like the graduate. That's the kind of bizarre visual flourish that you will often find just casually all over one of Greville's films. And there is something just a little bit distracting about it. I find Noose, which I enjoyed very much for the most part, I do find Noose a little bit difficult to follow. It's not the most ingratiating movie. It's not a movie that you fall into, you know? Well, the decision that uh, Greville made with Noose as well is that he paces it at like his girl Friday levels where everybody's talking really fast there's a million different characters and like the fastness of it is a joke it's a bizarre tone that this movie has it's super dark the material that they're dealing with but it's like ah it's just fun and silly yeah and it, it does have that like screwball tone it feels a little bit like a thin man movie you know yes that's right like nigel patrick one of the jokes is he answers the phone he goes yes hello no good okay goodbye and then he hangs it up at that beat and the visual style in the movie is very orson wellsian you know there's a lot of deep focus photography a lot of scenes of something in the extreme foreground and then in the background a lot of low angle shots with visible ceilings which i think you told me that didn't greville think that wells ripped him off greville said that he thought wells ripped off a filmmaker that greville worked with early on in his career called ea dupont who directed variety and piccadilly so something else that i love about greville and i think it may speak to why you find something like noose overwhelming is that he has to be one of the earliest documented like pure cinephiles that when he became a feature director he did it out of a pure love of cinema it wasn't something that he just fell into like he loved it he wrote articles about like breaking directors down and you know i read his biography that unfortunately is only written in french uh 35 years in the jungle of cinema and he just talks about like all the people that he like brushed shoulders with the experiences that he had with like forgotten directors like uh that he had a really great love for and just a career that was bouncing around all over the place looking for movies to make spending more money than he had and according to this biography which reads like a first draft because it's only half of his life and he passed away before he got to finish it he yeah slept around a lot (laughs) yeah mickey rooney levels in this book (laughs) (laughs) could you give some sense of what the arc of his career was like did he ever have a period of being at all a prestige director was he did he spend a lot of time making exploitation movies what was the what was the arc so if i start right at the beginning he was a guy that he worked as an assistant director which in france unlike uh north america when you work as an assistant director is to work towards being a director yourself and so he made a bunch of stuff with people like abel gantz he worked on napoleon and then he made his first film the train of suicides which is a 
unfortunately unavailable. And it's supposed to be like a Edgar G. Ulmer style, like very stripped down, very stylish without many resources. And from there, he got like a patron. You can find it on IMDb and he talks about it in his book, but he said he made 20 to 25 like short films for this rich person. And they're, none of them are available, like in a couple of years. So you think he might be a little bit of a bullshit artist? No, I don't think so. I think that all of the stuff that he says is pretty real um, because it doesn't have that kind of distance to, you know, the stuff that he's talking about in the same way that Edgar G. Ulmer had. Where did a movie like Whirlpool exist in the French film ecosystem? Well, so Whirlpool was a hit. That's as close as he got to being like a prestige filmmaker. And as far as I can tell, following that, he kind of burned um, whatever uh, capital he had with a picture called uh, Marchand d'Amour, which translates to Merchant of Love. And that's a very um, confusing title because the film is about a director. And it's about a director like trying to make his passion project and by consequence kind of tanking his career. And Greville made that movie in 1935. So I saw that you watched another one of his 1935 movies, Princess Tam Tam, starring the great Josephine Baker. What's that one about? So uh, Princess Tam Tam is about a rich French guy who's having a fight with his partner, which is usually how it goes with these movies, is that there's a conflict in a relationship. And the rich French writer decides, I'm going to go and get Josephine Baker and tame this, I'm putting this in air quotes, savage into a princess. Very problematic stuff. And Greville would say himself that, like a lot of filmmakers, he would um, separate his career into, uh, you know, really stuff that he felt passionate about. And I believe that the way he describes it is like beefsteak movies, <laughs> which is like, listen, you know, you eat it. It's fine. It does what it needs to do. But then we keep moving. <laughs> and I think Princess Tam Tam, he would consider one of those films that, you know, it was not one that he wrote. It was one that he was offered. He just went off. He did it. He did the best that he could do. There's a really fun Busby Berkeley style musical number at the end. But it's problematic from a script standpoint, even though that you can feel Greville sweating through it <laughs> to do as best as he can with the material. Yeah. Okay. You know who he reminds me of? Another filmmaker that we did, Robert Flory. Yes, absolutely. I would say that probably Greville is a little bit more successful than Robert Flory, because when we were going through those Robert Flory films, it was like, ah, man, we're really looking for that diamond in the rough. <laughs> Sometimes they don't have nothing going on with them. Um, it's called Murders in the Rue Morgue. <laughs> that, I love Murders in the Rue Morgue. But at least Robert Flory has that movie. Greville doesn't have any genre pictures that a fan could, like, latch onto. Well, he has one that we're going to get to a little bit later. <laughs> and so Greville, like, after Princess Tam Tam, he just bounced around. He went to England and made three movies in 1937 in English. I should point out that Greville spoke perfect English and French because he was adopted by a Franco and British uh, parents. So he spoke both languages and he would do stuff in France, like be uh, Louise Brooks's interpreter on sets of French films. So that gave him an advantage over most other French filmmakers. You mentioned that there are, in addition to the visual elements, recurring themes in his movies, stuff that make him an auteur kind of thematically. What are some of those things? Uh, definitely 
He loves movies about the dissolution of a relationship. It's like couples and how they break apart, oftentimes because the man is a controlling piece of shit. And reading about Greville's own life, I feel that's just a reflection of how he felt, of how he sometimes like he was cheating on women. He was married for a long time, decades to the same woman as he was having a bunch of affairs going on and how complicated this was and how he was interested in the kind of way that he could interpret these psychological destructions of a couple through visual means. He says that his favorite movies were the ones where it would be like two to three people in one room, because then that would open up all the opportunities of what he could do visually and cinematically to tell those kinds of stories. So I watched his big genre movie, The Hands of Orlock from 1960. Terrible. Oh uh, Yeah, and you told me it was terrible and I watched it anyway. And uh, the reason I watched it is because... Uh, first of all, I wanted to have a little fun. Uh, secondly, I wanted to see, um, you know, um, well, I guess there isn't a secondly. Hey, you got to see Christopher Lee, right? Christopher Lee's in it. I'll tell you, I was looking at his letterboxed page, his director's page, and I saw that poster. Oh, with great. Classic horror movie poster. And I thought, I know this is going to be bad, but how back? Even though I had written a two star review. And when you said I'm watching Hands of Warlock, I was like, don't do it. It's boring. man." Yeah, but I did anyway. And, you know, it is boring, but I don't know. It's like run of the mill stuff. I was disappointed, though, because I didn't see a lot of his visual flourish in it. No, there'll be like a little camera move and then you'll see like uh, Mel Ferrer like reflected in something. That's pretty much all you're going to get. It's very brightly lit and flat and not particularly interesting compositions. It's the story of you know it's kind of like a whirlpool too because it also features a couple of young lovers in the opening scene where you know the man suffers a horrific accident that ends up leading to far-ranging consequences the uh, main character is played by mel farrar and he loses his hands uh, in an accident. They're all charred off. And there's an emergency operation. Okay, folks, you have to understand, he's a great concert pianist. He needs those hands. And there's an emergency operation where there's a notorious killer who's being executed that night. And they decide to give Mel Farrar the killer's hands. Wait, have I seen this before? And perhaps Carl Frunz Mad Love or Robert Wines, uh, The Hands of Orlac, the original version from the 1920s? Yeah, and, you know, many other kinds of stories. Like- the episode of The Simpsons where Homer gets Snake's wig. Wasn't there a Robert Flory one that had a kind of similar plot? The Beast with Five Fingers? Yeah, there was a, about a killer hand, but that hand was like moving around and stuff like well, that. Well, I mean, look, I don't want to spoil the movie, but nobody listening to this is going to watch no, it. No, don't. Don't do it. It ends that actually it turns out the killer whose hands he got was uh, innocent the whole time. So. so it was really Mel that was the murderer and wanted to murder people the entire time. Again. Well, you know, I think he was being manipulated by the villain of the piece, a crooked magician played by the great Christopher Lee, who... This is a French film, and Christopher Lee is speaking French the whole time. Christopher Lee does speak French, and he speaks very good French. He gets to, like, do a stage show with a skeleton and, like, George Millier style. Yeah, stuff like that is what eventually pushed this movie up to two stars for me. But yeah, I wouldn't recommend. But if you search Edmund Greville's name, this is the first movie that comes up. It's everywhere. There's a million DVD copies of it. Can't get away from it. And when people watch it, they're like, ah, oh, this is boring. I'm not going to explore the filmmaker's filmography beyond this point. But then you have movies like Menace, which is really fascinating, especially the backstory, which was a movie that Greville made while World War II was starting. And it's about people reacting to World War II about to start. And then... World War II started, Greville had to run out of the country. The film didn't get completed until he came back and then he finished it and released it. I'll, I'll just quiz you on a couple other titles. 
Brief Ecstasy from 1937. What's that one about? That's one of his most popular. Very good. It's another Ramoo. It's about uh, a young woman marries a older man, and then she starts a relationship with a younger man, even though she does love the older man, and there's complications that arise from so there. So here's one from 1960. This is his most popular movie on Letterboxd. It appears to be more of an exploitation thing. It's called Beat Girl. This is in his uh, fallow period near the end of his life, and the reason that it's not good is because I feel Greville's lost with the material it's an aip style like uh young gangs on the loose and the reason it's the most watched one is because bfi flipside put it out on blu-ray because it does feature i believe john barry's first score and a young oliver reed in one of the co-starring roles one more from 1948 another one of his british movies the silk noose starring carol landis well that's one we talked about already noose it goes under a different title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. News. I, I watched that one. I liked it. Like in that period, like Le Diable Souf, which he made right before News in 1947, no English subtitles, even though there is a HD master floating around that played on French television. The English title is Woman of Evil, which is not what the uh, French title is. French title kind of is like The Devil Whispers or like literally The Devil Blows, which I understand why they didn't do a little translation of that. I'm glad to know more about Edmund Greville now because it makes me appreciate his final film, The Accident, from 1963 more. Uh, original title, L'Accident. Because uh, this movie does feel like the late style Greville. It's got a, a lot of the visual stuff, and it's got the thematic preoccupations too. And it feels very stripped down. And I think that why, I, I mean, I really like The Accident, and I think why it feels more powerful than the stuff that came before is that around this period, around the hands of Orlac, Greville met Bertin Tavernier and a bunch of cinephiles. And suddenly he realized that there were other fans of his work that were very passionate about his work. And like so that he would bring them to set. And, you know, he got really jazzed. And I think that's why L'Accident is the way that it is when the other films before that are kind of middling. Because you get the sense that he's like, I've been doing this for like 35 years. Nobody cares. Why should I try that hard? Well, it definitely feels like it's influenced or in conversation with some of the like big art house hits of the time also visually it has some commonalities with a movie like la ventura mm -hmm. the, the plot plays out like a bit like a movie like knife on the water the plot involves a uh, young woman who's a teacher who gets transferred to this school on a very remote island. The principal of the school is a man who falls in love with her. His wife gets very anxious about this. And it's this weird like power play between the two women that eventually leads to a shocking conclusion. And I think that what's fascinating about the film is that you can tell that Graville went in going, I want to do something like Antonioni. This is what will get me into film festivals. <laughs> if I do like, you know, you have the protagonist walking down the shore. There's these big boats that are crashed up against the sand <laughs> and they're going in and out of that. But as the movie plays along, he's falling back into his rhythms and he can't help himself. Like the big orchestral score starts to rise. It gets less stripped down, more operatic and its emotions until the big climactic finale or as the title says the accident so whenever i read like if there's a film comment article a sight and sound article that begins by saying that the filmmaker died a pauper's death you know just incredibly poor then i always i always perk up i'm always like ooh, something to discover here i mean how how did he die so so forgotten and poor i don't know he died of a car accident and according to like the introduction to his biography, Tavernier makes it sound like 
uh, Graville died of like medical error after the car accident. And yeah, he just passed away and there was no one to even pay for his gravestone. And Tavernier and a bunch of uh, friends had to start a pot to raise the money to be able to get one, which is just baffling to me for somebody that worked so long in the industry. But I get the sense that he just jumped from project to project, independent producer to independent producer around the world. So any relationship that he made was often left in the dust to move on to the next one. So we have established that there is much of interest in this filmmaker. And Justin, what are the ones that if people want to dive into this very daunting and difficult body of work, where should they start? I would say check out News First just because it's in English and it's easily accessible. It's on a bunch of websites because it's a lot of uh, Griffith's films are in like the mysterious public gray market zone. So you can find them on a b- bunch of like YouTube and like Daily Motions, but still enough that I'm like, I feel like somebody owns the rights to this because it was only released by one tiny British label. And then I would recommend check out a French film that he made like Whirlpool from 1935. It's out there with subtitles. And other than that, check out in the link to this uh, episode, you will find a article that I wrote for Film Trap, where I also recommend some other ones and also break down his filmography into what is available. Like, is it on DVD? Is it on the internet? What has subs? What is lost? And, you know, that's a good starting point for uh, the Graville filmography. If it interests you of someone of like Edgar G. Ulmer, Joseph H. Lewis style that worked in France and has been completely forgotten. But shouldn't be forgotten. No, I don't think he should be forgotten. And I'm, I think that like the hands of Orlac and Beat Girl are just like the things that hurt him the most. Like in the booklet for Beat Girl, the BFI flip side release, he barely gets a mention. So as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from... Henry Dobozy, and he goes, Hey, Justin and Will, I'm a 14-year-old Canadian cinephile. Uh-oh, that's a little young for listening to this podcast, don't you think, Will? Oh, I don't know. I think uh, I think more children should listen to us. I think, think of us as the older brother you never had. Yeah, we should be like the peanut butter solution forced on every elementary school in Canada for some baffling reason. And he continues, I am a Canadian cinephile who started listening to your podcast through your Luc Moulin episode, being a huge fan of the French New Wave. Wow, you are an incredible 14-year-old. Hats off to you. I was not a fan of the French New Wave when I was 14. <laughs> yeah. I was all about the Dragon Balls and the other stuff like that. Yeah, I respect... You know what? You're going to take over this podcast one day. I can tell. Anyways, I make short films in my spare time, and I've realized that something I really like using in movies is static shots throughout. So as much to highlight the occasional tracking shot. However, there seems to be a lot of criticism around directors with static camera styles. So I was wondering if you could recommend any well-regarded auteurs who have a largely still camera as part of their style. Keep up the good work. I especially like your episodes on silent comedians such as Harold Lloyd and more obscure art house auteurs such as Jacques Tournard. Thanks, Henry. Oh, well, thank you very much for uh, listening to those podcasts. As far as like filmmakers with a still camera style. I've got a few ideas. I mean, I mean, I think, first of all, of like the granddaddy of the static camera, Mr. Charlie Chaplin, who often used the camera, you know, not to say that he didn't have a good visual sense, but he often used the camera as a way of recording himself. You know, I would say uh, check out something like the Romanian New Wave. They love their uh, static cameras in the, in those movies. But I would also say that I think that like static Static cameras work as long as there's intent behind it. The thing that is weakest, I find, when I watch movies is, especially like uh, present day movies, is like a multicam style where you're filming like, all right, I'm shooting it from multiple angles and I'll put it together in the edit. There's no intent there. So as like, if you want to be like, 
a filmmaker with a voice that is very present, doing stuff statically works very well as long as you have intent and that static shot has some kind of thematic base within the short or if you ever get to feature films and you will that you're making just as important as the shot is the cut a lot of the filmmakers who i like who typically use static shots they come across as quite visually dynamic because of the juxtaposition of the shots you take robert brasson you take russ meyer for that matter somebody yeah, who he, he never moved his camera if he didn't have to. i mean russ meyer's films seem extremely visually dynamic because of the sometimes frantic sometimes not frantic but just unusual juxtaposition of the images mm -hmm. and i mean the letter writer is right when he says that like if you are mostly still tracking shots will pop i think of fritz lang's metropolis which has i think only one or two tracking shots but when they happen you're like whoa because it's never happened before i'll say one thing else about this sometimes silent movies can be difficult to watch now like i'm talking like really early silent movies like from the 1910s they can be difficult for modern eyes because the really early ones don't make a lot of heavy use of the moving camera so like there are a lot of short films where it'll be like a stage play you'll see a lot of things happening in the frame and the silent film will sort of put a lot on you to be able to judge like the connections being made in the frame there could be five characters in the shot but a more modern movie would have like shot reverse shot it would have close-ups to tell you like where to look at this moment but you've actually got to follow the actor's motions in a silent film oftentimes and i think that like silent films are often difficult for people to follow because they are used to a pace being imposed by not only camera move, but editing and sound of like, how am I supposed to absorb this? It needs to follow the rhythms of movies that I know and the silent films don't have that kind of backbone information because we're not used to experiencing stuff that way. So it can be difficult for people, but that's why, you know, it's interesting when you do stuff that is, you know, closer to that because you are asking a lot of your audience. You just need to be aware when you do that. So, yeah, I would say like, take a look at some movies from the 1910s and just like, just think about how the story is being told in, in that frame. And I mean, Paul Schrader in his book, uh, transcendental style in cinema oh man i'm 14 years old i'm reading transcendental style in cinema i think this guy can take it honestly <laughs> i can't even take it now <laughs> like he often talks in that book about how certain filmmakers like ozu uh and carl dreyer will use a more static frame to sort of like require the audience to participate more require the viewer to work a little harder to follow the action to make make judgments and to decide what are the, what's the information in the frame that's most important to the viewer i would also suggest check out a filmmaker like carl theodore dreyer because he moves his camera a lot but not in the way that you would associate modern camera moves so i think that would be interesting to go explore his filmography just to see what a camera move can do and what it can mean emotionally or even kind of like subtextually in the images that you're presenting to a viewer. So thanks again for that letter. And our next one is from Sean Curran. And he goes, filmmakers you aren't getting. Hello, boys. My question this week is on filmmakers that you aren't quite getting. These past few weeks, I've been watching some Bressons. I connected greatly with A Man Escaped and was excited to continue my journey through his filmography, but quickly found myself struggling mightily through Diary of a Country Priest, Oazar, Balthazar, and Pickpocket. I was feeling very unenthused and uneager to persist, but I'm so thankful I did. Something clicked while watching L'Argent, and I have immensely enjoyed the rest of his work, and I'm now so keen to return to the three I initially struggled through. I'm wondering if you could speak of any film 
filmmakers you once struggled with and the great breakthrough you made with them to really appreciate their work. Or additionally, the filmmakers whose work you are currently struggling with or don't quite get. Your work is a fantastic resource, educational, entertaining, and greatly appreciated. Many thanks, Sean. He's never a filmmaker that I disliked, but somebody who we've talked about on the podcast uh, a number of times who I think I had a breakthrough with was Siming Lang, the Taiwanese filmmaker. I mean, when I was younger, like when I was in my late teens or early 20s, uh, the the sheer slowness of his work was definitely a challenge. The films I saw when I was in my late teens and early 20s, I wouldn't say I had a strong emotional connection to them. But I do remember seeing his movie Stray Dogs at the Toronto Film Festival and being trapped with that movie, which is one of his slowest being trapped in those images and just feeling kind of like time slip away, feeling like time became something else. It caused me to understand that this seemingly, to use the word again, static frame, this seemingly static nothing image, there is actually stuff that happens in this image and it recalibrates your understanding of what a narrative event is. Like if you see a face that's on screen for five minutes and then a teardrop suddenly goes down the face that can become a very powerful thing. So that's an example of somebody who I didn't I, I didn't quite groove with the first time I saw him and over time, like I, I had a had a very clear breakthrough and I've only loved more and more since. Well, I'm a very intelligent individual and I get everything that I watch on the first go through. You're like Pauline K. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I think that like stuff that I really don't like that is like classic stuff. I feel like I say like, oh, maybe I'm not getting it because I'm not in the right headspace right now. Or, you know, I'll go back to it later and I'll enjoy it. Like, I remember watching a Tarkovsky film during one of those TIFF retrospectives and it was so hot and I was so miserable and I felt like I was in prison that if I even moved in my seat, the person in front of me would like turn around and stare at me. That that was like a miserable film experience. But then when I watched that movie, Andra Rublev at home, I had tons of fun. So, you know, it all depends when you watch a movie, your state of mind. I would say that a filmmaker that I still do not get and I really want to get is late period Michael Mann. I do not understand people's love for that. And I, I'm still trying, man. Oh, well, I guess I didn't get Tony Scott when we did him. Late period Michael Mann is someone who I feel like I'm I'm getting a little bit more than I used to. Um, I, although I still have to watch the Black Hat Director's Cut. Maybe I'll do that. I did this week and it was fine. It was fine. I saw Miami Vice in a theater uh, when it came out, like on a theatrical run. And I was like, I was basically crusty. I was like, what the hell is this? Well, I mean, I remember seeing Public Enemies in a theater. I, I did as well. I keep going to see these Michael Mann movies. With Public Enemies, he shot it in that digital style where... I mean, when I saw it, I thought, like, has he lost his mind? This looks this looks fucking horrible. I feel like if I went back to watch it, I would like that. But I found the film itself unengaging. I like the theory of, like, he, he's doing a period piece about Dillinger. And, like, what if he did it in a digital style? Love that idea. What if it didn't have that burnished, like, period piece style? What if it looked immediate and direct? So that was something I didn't understand at the time that now I think I understand better. And maybe I should just, like, watch the movie again to see if I like you it. You know, me and Will have talked about, like, Michael Mann and other filmmakers of that sort that, like, people champion a lot when you look on, like, you know, any social media platform. And that, like, 
even if we don't understand, our reaction shouldn't be like, whoa, this person is stupid. They don't understand because they can enjoy it. It doesn't affect us like at the end of the day. And also like there are just so many factors, as you indicated, so many factors that contribute to the liking and disliking of a movie. Like movies ultimately are kind of like these neutral objects and we and society bring our baggage to them. And that's what ultimately illuminates Ugh, them. Don't make me take my Blu-ray out of Public Enemies out, Will. I'm going to do it. I think I might watch uh miami vice later tonight actually oh no we're back in and like every time though like i was watching black cat i'm like ah yeah i'm digging this and then an hour in i'm like oh man man you lost it you lost it you fell off that tightrope you you lost me so what are we doing on a patreon this week will if there's one thing that i like more than a great filmmaker it's three great filmmakers so we are talking about a film that brings together three of the leading lights of the 70s and 80s american cinema and surely it will be three times as good (laughs) It's called New York Stories from 1989. That's right, the film that brought Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, and everyone's favorite, Woody Allen, together in an anthology context. Do we have a contrarian opinion on which is the best anthology short? Well, we're going to have to listen at patreon.com slash the important cinema club to find out. $5 a month, you get that episode and our entire back catalog, as well as this month's self-destructing Patreon episode, which hasn't come out yet, but will be about the Super Mario Brothers movie. (laughs) 20 minutes on that, Will. I'm excited. Like five years ago, we talked about the Super Mario Brothers movie on this podcast with Matthew Kumar on that episode, and I I haven't seen it since, and I'm excited to see if it's gotten even better than it was that time. Was that the one that you brought to the table, or was that the one that Matthew brought? I brought it. You remember the episode was called, like, Garbage We Liked as Kids. Yes, I remember. <laughs> no, Matthew brought, for some reason, Jumping Jack Flash. I remember now. That was the big controversy of that episode. That terrible film. <laughs> So, we have a big uh, Gold Ninja Video Blu-ray to talk about, Will, that's available now at goldninjavideo.com. Well, it's available for pre-order. Pre-order, yeah. It's shipping on April 25th. The thing with Gold Ninja Video is, I think sometimes we look at each other and we say, like, what's the DVD release, the Blu-ray release you would like to see in the world? And then we, we we try to create it. Like, if you just had a fantasy, like, wouldn't it be amazing if somebody put something like this out? And... We've talked about Bruce exploitation before. Bruce exploitation are those Bruce Lee ripoff movies that came out after Bruce Lee died. Well, Mr. Jackie Chan is still with us, but after he first became a star, there was a wave of imitation Jackie Chan movies. Every martial arts film was an imitation Jackie Chan film that was ripping off Drunken Master and Snake and the Eagle. So Shadow. we have got this new Blu-ray set. It's three discs that gives you a representative cross sample of Jackie exploitation. So, I don't know if Jackie exploitation is an official uh term. We were calling it Chan exploitation, but when I was sitting down to put this disc together, I was like it's Bruce exploitation, it should be Jackie exploitation. We're breaking new ground. We're planting a flag. And we're starting with I think one of the most infamous Jackie exploitation releases, probably the one that kind of spurred this project because you would see it in every single bargain bin for the last 20 years. Master Whisk Cracked Fingers. Yeah, this is a movie. It was built from a movie that Jackie Chan shot when he was 17, fresh out of the Chinese opera school. Just a really run-of-the-mill martial arts movie that starred him. And then after he became famous, they took this footage and they shot a whole lot of new footage including a new final fight scene where Jackie is suddenly wearing a blindfold because it's not the real Jackie. But what's surreal about this film is that the new footage features Simon Yun 
who was the master in Staking in the Eagle Shadow and Drunken Master. Now, this movie is just one of like 10 Jackie exploitation films. Some of them have Jackie's involvement. So you've got uh, Dance of Death, which is a movie that he did fight choreography on. And it stars Angela Mao, probably one of the most famous uh, women martial artists on screen, doing Jackie Chan shtick very successfully, I might add. And it's also directed by the guy who directed Jackie in like Half a Loaf of Kung Fu and a lot of those early Jackie comedy films before Snake in the Eagle's Shadow. I also included, mostly as a bonus feature, the film that they used in Master with Cracked Fingers, Cub Tiger of Quantung as well. So if you wanted to watch it uncut without Simon Yud, it's there. You also have the other one that Jackie's face was on all the time uh, in Bargain Bins, 36 Crazy Fists, even though that Jackie only appears in behind-the-scenes footage in the opening credits. But he did choreograph the film. But beyond that, there's a whole world of martial arts to discover in this release. Yeah, it features people like Samuel Hung trying to do the Jackie shtick and the incredible Kung Fu master. You have the amazing Method Man and Mystery of Chess Boxing, two kind of Snake in the Eagle Shadow drunken master ripoffs that uh, the titles and characters were taken by the Wu-Tang Clan for their names and album titles and song titles, also clips. You have um, Hell's Windstaff, which stars Wan John Lee, who was uh, one of the main Jackie Chan villains and did a bunch of Jackie Chan's exploitation films, mostly as the villain in the picture. And it's amazing. Uh, I dug deep for like all of these films because I discovered that like I didn't want to do like 10 Drunken Master ripoffs because it would get old real fast. So I have something like Two Wondrous Tigers, which is about um, two guys fighting for the hand of a woman. This one is Jackie Chan's exploitation because uh, a lot of the people who worked on it also did those films. And it also stars John Chung, who was one of the top Jackie Chan imitators. So yeah, there's a lot of films. You have... Uh, Dance of the Drunken Mantis, which is the one that Yuo Ping and his brothers went off to try to make without Jackie Chan, which was like another Jackie Chan style film. That one's a delight as well. It's, I think, kind of a sequel to Drunken Master because you've got Simon Yoon reprising his role of Beggar So. Yeah, I mean, Simon Yoon is all over this place. So some of the special features on this include a little featurette on Simon Yoon, uh, a man who uh, made Sake in the Eagle Shadow and Drunken Master died the next year and somehow was able to be in 12 films in between that, or even more than that, as that master role. They worked him to death. Yeah, pretty much. We also have commentary on Master with Cracked Fingers with me and Will. You have me and Will talking about low-budget uh, martial art uh, video releases, like all the great labels. You have a Jackie exploitation trailer reel. You have me and Alex Chung talking about how to make a Jackie Chan fight scene at home. Do you see us construct a fight scene in the featurette? Of course you do. All of this stuff, three discs, goldninjavideo.com, limited edition. Woo, order it now. I mean, the reason we talked about this so much, and, you know, it's not just to sell Blu-rays. It's because we're really passionate about this. This... I'm so proud to be associated with this. Oh, we love this kind of stuff. Uh, it's one of those things that you're like, how has it not been done before? <laughs> because it seems so obvious. But, eh, you know, these films are usually treated like crap. You find them on, again, like bargain bin transfers by companies like Ground Zero Entertainment. Remember those guys? Oh, yeah. I mean, Ground Zero Entertainment had some sort of deal with the Wu-Tang Clan, I think, where they would have like Wu-Tang music videos as the bonus features. Oh, those menus were nightmares. <laughs> Awful. Yeah. So, yeah, check it out. 
at, again, goldninjavideo.com. So what are we doing next week, Will? Next week, we are talking about Hollywood superstar Robert Downey, record scratch, senior. senior? <laughs> <laughs> you certainly know Robert Downey Jr., but you may or may not know that his father, Robert Downey Sr., was a great underground filmmaker in the 60s and 70s his biggest movie is putney swope a riotous satire of race relations and advertising in america i'm sure we will also talk about other films maybe greaser's palace um should we venture into his ignominious late period at all he had all these like cool boundary pushing uh underground movies in the 60s but then like he made Up the Academy, the Mad Magazine movie, and he made Too Much Sun, where it's like, I don't know if you've ever heard of this one. It stars Eric Idle and Andrea Martin as siblings who are gay, and in order to get an inheritance, they have to marry marry straight. So it's that kind of shenanigans. <laughs> I'm sure it's very tactful. So that's what we're going to be doing next week. And until then, my name is Justin Nicklin. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Justin here, interrupting briefly to let you know that I will be hosting another 24-hour movie mind melter marathon. This time, it will be summer-themed. It's happening on June 5th, starting at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And as we've done before, it'll be on Twitch. It'll be 24 hours of movies that I've handpicked, and it's going to be a blast. I want to introduce people to some of the best movies that they've never heard of before that will be super fun to enjoy with a group. I've done this a number of times now, and it's always been a blast, especially if you can stay the entire time. And even if you can just drop in for a couple of hours, because I understand everybody has lives that they have to live but if you can this experience will never be recreated anywhere else there will be prizes i will do introductions to all the screenings and you will see me absolutely exhausted by the end of it it is the summer mind melter movie marathon for more information check out my twitter page i have it pinned at the top at declue j d-e-c-l-o-u-x and the letter j i'd also like to remind people if you have not given us any reviews on apple podcast or whatever podcast platform that you use we really appreciate it it allows more people to discover the podcast so if you haven't yet and you enjoy it please go write a review and give us a rating and we now return you to your regular scheduled program. Well, I gotta say that there's a superhero movie that I am so excited for coming out. Oftentimes, I guess I've become the type of guy to turn my nose up at superheroes, at your Marvel Cinematic Universes, that sort of thing. But uh, Michael Keaton is playing Batman again. It was confirmed this week. It's going to be for this new Flash movie, where apparently the plot of it is that the Flash somehow accidentally creates some uh, time distortion. Where yeah, it's called Flashpoint. It happened in the DC Comics. Okay, okay. You don't seem that enthusiastic, but I am. But part part of what he does is he creates an alternate timeline where Michael Keaton has been Batman for 30 years. All I can imagine, it'll be like Michael Keaton in front of a green screen, and he just like turns around and he's wearing the Batman outfit, and he's like, hey, Flash. Flash, and that's it. We never see him again. I don't know. It seems that he's in London now. They've got the same Wayne Manor from the 1989 movie that they're filming at. Well, I mean, I, I got something that'll excite you even more. It's directed by the guy who did It. 
You love the It movies, right, uh, Will? I mean, you know, probably better than Tim Burton at this point. Oh, God. If they announced Tim Burton was making a Batman movie, I'd be like, oh, boy. I mean, here's the thing. I know I'm a fool for being excited for this. Yes. You know what? No matter what, it'll deliver. You just want to see Michael Keaton as Batman, and you're going to get that. This is my Star Wars. This is my Force Awakens. It's like, <laughs> I, I am a man of flesh and blood. I am only human. And this meant so much to me when I was so small that I can't not be excited to see Michael Keaton back in the cape and cowl does that mean you'll be very excited about and i can't believe we haven't mentioned this on the podcast before space jam 2 <laughs> no although i will say that i'm always happy to see bugs and daffy back in the well, saddle you've seen the trailer right where you all the ips are back <laughs> it, lo- it looks horrible it looks like a bastardization <laughs> of everything i like about those characters uh, who was there wasn't there a, like it looked like uh jim carrey's riddler is there tommy lee jones two-face but it's not really them and we're not children's at a birthday party like we're not happy to see imitations of them on the big screen There's something is so dispiriting about space jam 2 where the thesis of it is basically all of this intellectual property what ultimately matters about it is that warner brothers owns it yeah and look, they're side by side. And you're like, I don't want this. This is not what I want. Like I, somebody pointed out that Barry Lyndon is in the audience at, at the game. No way. Barry Lyndon next to like the penguin. And it's like. I hope Ryan O'Neill did the mocap for that. <laughs> <laughs> like they brought him in, do a couple of lines. And he's like, hey, everybody. Does some narration over the movie. What? Who is this movie for? Like Space Jam 2 was a film that was like built in a lab for no one. Didn't they learn their lesson with Ready Player One, a film that nobody liked? This is what the world is now. Maybe people are going to love Space Jam 2. And how insulting is it that like, oh, look, the Looney Tunes, they're back in, oh, wait, they're turning into 3D CGI creations? You know, when I was a kid, there were so many things that I desperately wanted and desperately pined for, and I got them all over the last 10 years. Like, <laughs> And you're not any happier for it. <laughs> no, and in fact, I regret most of them. Like, I definitely would have loved to see Luke Skywalker again, and, and I got it. And I mean, when I was a kid, like, I craved a Monty Python reunion. And you got it. And it wasn't very good. I remember seeing Dumb and Dumber as a kid and thinking, I would love to see more of this. And you got it. This wasn't good. Yeah. And now you got uh, Tim Burton's Batman hanging out with the Looney Tunes. What is there not to like? Yeah, <laughs> it's the best of all possible worlds, isn't it? <laughs> as we're living through a pandemic. <laughs> and this is the entertainment that's going to be shoved down our throats. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, you know what? I do have to say... That I really appreciate that LeBron James looks to be as committed as Michael Jordan. I mean, is. yeah, they shouldn't they shouldn't have athletes star in movies. It just doesn't well, work. Well, we'll be there opening day, July 16th, 2021, for Space Jam, a new legacy. What does that even mean, legacy? Well, there's the legacy of the first movie that we're all feeling. Yeah, that's right. That's why we live in the world that we do today. It's chaos theory. If Space Jam hadn't happened, we wouldn't be where we are. Ugh.